All right, I'm going to come closer to you here. Which of you kids have played this game? What is it? What is it, Julia? What's the game called? Go ahead, Lydia. Operation. Raise your hand if you've played Operation before. Everyone. Who's played Operation before? How old is this game? It's pretty old, right? You press this nose and it buzzes. You have to operate on this person and make sure you do it properly. If you don't, then the thing buzzes, right? That means you've done something wrong and hurt your patient as the doctor, right? So I don't know. I don't know if you've played it before, but I know you did. I know. It's a very popular game, and it's lasted a long, long time. And look, it says, with doctor cards and classic ailments. Do you know what ailments means? Ailments. It means sicknesses. It means when you get sick. Have you, have you guys ever been sick before? Okay, what, how have you been? Malachi, what have you been sick with before? You threw up? Yeah, that's not fun. Julia, what have you been sick with before? Is this, a, is this breaking HIPAA privacy? I guess they're consenting to it, so it's okay. Henry, what have you been sick with before? The hives. Ooh, itchy, yuck. Lydia, what have you been sick with before? Stomach bug. That's no fun either. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Elsie. Normal sick. Have you ever had a fever and the chills? Yeah, that's no good. Julia, what have you been sick with? Your hip hurts. Must be old age. I know. Just wait till you get to your 80. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, the things you guys have mentioned, they're, they're not too bad. You got better pretty quickly, right? But sometimes it can get a lot worse than that, right? Where people can have trouble sleeping night after night after night, even for years, so that they're just really tired every day. Or they can have a pain in their, in their back, like you, Julia, but for not just a little bit, but for years and years and years, or in their foot or their leg, or sometimes it can even be where the cells in our body, they just keep growing, but they're not supposed to be growing. Not like growing taller, but like this, this thing called cancer, that can happen too. I don't know if you guys remember Mariah, who used to come to this church. She was you guys' age, and she was really sick. And her cells were growing in a way that they weren't supposed to be growing. And she had to go to the hospital and get treatment. And she did get better. But sometimes we might know people, maybe your friends, maybe a family, where they get sick and they don't get better, right? And they just stay really sick. And, they, and we, can get, we can get really sad, right, if they don't get better, if there are people we love, if there are friends or a family. Well, God teaches us in the Bible that we don't just get sick physically, like the examples you gave, but that also we can get a sickness in our heart, in our minds, in our souls, and that God says he wants to make us better, not just physically, but also all of us spiritually, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. He wants to heal everything in us, and he promises that he will heal everything in us if we trust in him. But it's easy to forget God's promise uh, to heal us because sometimes we're like, well, God, you haven't done it yet. Well, maybe you're not listening. Maybe you're not going to be keeping your promise. But God is a God who keeps promise, even though he may not heal right away. And he hasn't forgotten the promise that he's made. Do you guys know what Advent means? Just hold on, Henry. Do you know what Advent means? We talk about it being Advent. Do you know what it means? What do you know what Advent means? 
Advent means we're waiting. It means waiting. And it means what are we waiting for? Christmas. We're waiting for Christmas, right? We're waiting for Christmas. We're waiting to celebrate the birth of Jesus, to remember and celebrate that God came into this world through his son, Jesus, and he came to heal us and make us better, not just physically, but spiritually and all over. Now, I'm going to ask you to grab one of these in a moment, but you get a little, a very little gift. I want you to think of a star today, okay? This is a star. Not right now. I just want to show you. Okay, I want you to remember a star. Remember that a star reminds us that God... Christmas star. Christmas star. Think of a Christmas star, yes. I want you to think of this star as that God has made a promise and that God has kept a promise. Okay, and the promise that God has made is that God promised Abraham that God was going to make out of his family a nation so big with so many people that it'll be as great as the number of stars in the sky. Have you ever tried to go out and count the number of stars in the sky when on a really clear night? It's pretty hard, right? There's so many stars out there. Yeah, you can't. You can't cross them out. It makes it difficult to, like, did I count that one or not, right? It's hard to remember. Now, I want you to remember, so that's a, that's a promise that God made, that he was going to make God's people as many as stars in the sky, but also a promise that he kept through Jesus, and that a star showed the wise men where to go to find the king of the universe, the God of the universe that came as a baby, as baby Jesus. Do you guys know what this is? It's a star. Do you know what this is for? It's not just a star. Yeah, what is it, Elsie? A Christmas hanger. A Christmas something hanger. It's a Christmas ornament hanger. So I don't know if you guys have decorated your trees yet, but maybe you, you have. Maybe you still have an extra ornament that you can hang. So when you get home... When you get home, I want you to grab, you, I want you to take this, I'm going to give you one. I want you to take one of these, and I want you to hang one of your Christmas ornaments with it on one of the branches. And when you look at the star, I want you to remember that God made a promise to Abraham and that he kept a promise through Jesus, okay? And that he has come, he's promised to heal us of all our sicknesses, both physically and spiritually, all right? Okay, so on those two trees on this side, you'll find these ornament hangers, star ornament hangers. I want you to grab one and then go back to your mom and dad, okay? Thanks for joining me. Yeah, go grab one from the tree. If you have a sibling, who you can grab one for your sibling too if you want. I knew your adults are like, why don't I get one? If you want one, you can go come up to the tree later and, and grab one for your decorations. This is going to be a strange transition, but Julius Caesar once said, after a battle, veni vidi vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. And in today's passage, in response to the Israelites crying out, God said something that sounds kind of like that, but very different. He said, to the, Egypt, uh, to the Israelites who were enslaved, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, 
God knew. We often jump into Christmas without much thought about what Christmas is about. Maybe like on the day of or the day before, finally, like, okay, oh my, it's Christmas. I better think about this. And maybe Advent even feels like just one long shopping excursion that starts on Black Friday and then goes all the way to Christmas Eve when you're trying to get that one last present. And maybe in terms of getting the right gift at the perfect price, you say along with Julius Caesar, Vini, Viti, <laughs> I can't even say it. Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered. You know, that thrill you get from getting the right bargain. But that's really not what Christmas is about, right? I mean, I myself this Thanksgiving weekend and thinking, how is it Thanksgiving already? Literally, and I know maybe we say this every year, but this just feels uh, even more sped up than normal. I just don't understand how it's the first Sunday of Advent. It literally, to me, feels like it's just a few weeks after the fall semester begun. Many of you are facing the stress of exams and end of semester papers. The rest of us are trying to keep working and family and Christmas preparations and parties and present shopping. And so it's easy, again, to like not slow down enough to think, what is Christmas really about? And that's why we uh, follow Advent just a month ahead of time to slow down enough to really consider what Advent, uh, what Christmas is about. And you know, even if we do take the time during this month to go back to scripture and think, what is Christmas really about? We may not go far back enough. Now, I made you go far back in that the last sermon series was Habakkuk, and that's good because this minor prophet really was one of the last voices in scripture leading to the coming of Christ. And so, it's important for us to remember the context of Jesus' coming, that the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, is the context for Jesus' coming, and that Jesus' coming as baby Jesus really doesn't make a lot of sense if we don't consider the promises, the expectations, and the longings of Israel in the Old Testament, and their longing to be delivered from slavery, from sin, from suppression, from oppression, So we're going to look at this text um, in Exodus to remember anew. What is this context for Christmas? And, you know, we're inspired by the Behold the Lamb series and kind of taking inspiration from a song each week. And so today's text is in Exodus 2. And I hope that what we'll see today is because God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew, we can have a a long-suffering longing. Because God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew, we can have a long-suffering longing. So let's dig into the text, okay? You heard it read a little bit, but I'll just uh, read it one more time here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard heard their groaning. Let's just start with this first word, God heard. In this text, we hear um, Moses describe that God hears the groans and cries of Israel as they suffer under slavery under Egypt. And then we know, right, this event is the key redemptive event in the Old Testament that gets hearkened back to again and again by Israel and by Christians. And that Israel's slavery to Egypt is meant to be a parallel for our, for humanity's slavery to sin. And that just as God delivered Israel from slavery through Moses, so God will deliver us from slavery to sin through Jesus. 
And we know that the Apostle Paul echoes this language of slavery in his letter to the Romans, where he talks about humanity being enslaved to sin, and that it is through Jesus that we have freedom from this slavery to sin. The question I think we often ask ourselves in these times is whether this truth of Scripture still holds. It feels a bit offensive to be say that we are slaves to sin. Is it still true? And maybe in in our culture today, we do, even ourselves as Christians, react against this language. But really, the reality is people beyond past have reacted against this idea of being slaves to sin, of this biblical description of Paul's. And in our human pride, we want to believe we are quite free and capable to seek the good life in our own strength. We want to believe we don't need help, we don't need saving, we don't need rescuing like the Israelites did, that we can manage in our own strength, in our own know-how to get it done. And so we find in Scripture it is the prostitutes and the poor and the extortionists who are quite ready to admit their need for rescuing, that they were enslaved to something that maybe they couldn't even really put words to. They just knew their life was not the way it was meant to be. Some of you may be quite aware of things, characteristics that you are enslaved to in your life. Perhaps it's an addiction. Perhaps it's a a harshness you find yourself having towards people on a consistent basis. Perhaps it's just judgmental thoughts that come up in your mind again and again. Maybe you don't even say anything, but you know in your mind that you're judging those around you. Perhaps it's just a low view of yourself that you struggle with day after day, year after year. Perhaps it's an independence that makes it difficult for you to trust in God the way that you hear Scripture calling you to. You may even feel quite a bit of shame about any one of these things if you resonate with them. But know deep in your heart, as this text tells us, that God hears our groans and cries. Some of you may resist this categorization of being enslaved to sin. Maybe you find it offensive. But maybe you can just think, are are there some things or characteristics that you feel like have control over you rather than you have control over it? Some bad habit or practice or personality trait that you're like, I really don't like that about myself. How deep Does that unhealthiness go? Or in Christian language, we would say, how far does that sin, that brokenness go? In one of the songs that we will sing in a moment, that's from Behold the Lamb, what the line says, uh, the song is Deliver Us, the line says, our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. In prison here we dwell in our land. Talking about this parallel of Slavery in Egypt to slavery to sin. No, we don't have literal shackles around us. Yet we sometimes can feel very much imprisoned by our own body, by our own flesh, by our own tendencies. And I want to ask you just a simple question. Do you believe that God hears your groans and your cries and your sighs to God? Even when those groans are from your own sins, you might think that if you're groaning from your own sin, that God might just say to you, suck it up, deal with it, and when you're ready, come back to me when you've got it sorted out. If God hears Israel's cries against slavery to Egypt, how much more will he 
hear our cries against our slavery to sin, our struggle against sin. God is a being who hears, a being who relates to us. He hears our cries. We believe in a God who hears and reveals himself as a God who hears. And he is very much intending to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives so that we can be free in the way that we long to be free. Now, it's interesting in verse 23, the context here says, just very briefly, makes a point to tell us the king of Egypt died. Perhaps it is this changing of this king for the Israelites that gave the Israelites a hope that maybe this new king will be a better king. Maybe we won't suffer as much anymore. Maybe the oppression will make us just a little bit more comfortable than it was before. And maybe what they found in the end was new king, same suffering, same oppression. And their cries went out to God as their hopes for change were dashed. I think it's interesting for us, you know, how often when we we suffer, we can rely and hope that if only our circumstances will change, if only a better king comes along. If only a better president comes along, if only a better pastor comes along, if only a better boss comes along, if only my family will stop being so difficult, if only I have a better job, if my circumstances change, Lord, then I can trust you. Then I'll be okay. Then maybe our sighs and our groans will go away. Theologian John Calvin says this about this particular text. Verse 23, from this example, he's talking about the Israelites here crying out to God after the king of Egypt died. From this example, we learn that although the pressure of our tribulations weighs us down with sorrow and pain, yet that our prayers are not straight away directed to God and that much is required to stimulate our sluggish hearts. Have your hearts gotten sluggish in this season of your life? Have disappointments kept you from bringing your cries to God because you're worried that God's going to let you down again, or at least that's the way it feels? This Advent season, stimulate your heart to worship God by bringing your cries to God, trusting that he is the God who hears. But he's not just the God who hears because this text says God hears and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered. Now, this Exodus chapter 1 and 2 sets up the whole book of Exodus, which, again, is a key book in in Scripture. And it sets up the story of Exodus. In Exodus verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we really, we pick up where Genesis ends. And so we pick up with Joseph, Joseph's presence in Egypt. He's brought along his father Jacob and all his brothers after what they had done to him. And we are told that Jacob and all his descendants numbered 70 people and that they had moved down to Egypt because there was food there. But then the number of Jacob's descendants grew. Israel grew from that initial 70 people to many, many, many people. And that when a new king took over who didn't know Joseph, who didn't want to show favor to Joseph and his descendants and Israel anymore, this king feared Israel and decided to oppress them, to enslave them. 
And this introductory section of the book of Exodus ends here. It started with verses 1 through 7 in chapter 1 and ends here in chapter 2, the verses you heard read earlier, saying that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, to us, that may not mean so much. I'm like, Abraham, that was thousands of years ago. I don't know Abraham. That doesn't mean anything to me. And yet, what we learn from this is that God's people will not be defined by their slavery. That God's people will be defined by their covenant relationship with God. And the way that this introductory, these first two introductory chapters of Exodus describes the people of God and the deliverance that God will bring through the course of the story of Exodus in the book of Exodus, we see that God is saying the most defining thing about the people of God is not their slavery, but their relationship with God. So likewise for us as Christians, our most defining quality, our identity is our covenant relationship with God and nothing else. Our identity is not our greatest failure. Our, greatest, our identity is not our greatest success, which is often where we find it. Our identity is not our earthly family, whether we are ashamed of our earthly family or proud of our earthly family. Our identity is being God's people, being God's beloved. Again, theologian John Calvin says, the conjunction here between uh, God heard and God remembered should not be and God heard and God remembered. He says it should be God heard because God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, okay, translations. Calvin's not in agreement with most uh, biblical translators. So who knows? He knows a lot more, more, more uh, Hebrew than I do, but I think his emphasis on God's covenant promises and his faithfulness to those promises is vital, is right on. And we forget that, particularly because we're so far removed from these promises to Abraham. We are not Israelites uh, by blood, right? We, we, have, we have been grafted in spiritually by faith. And we have to remember here that Israel themselves at this time, they were not faithful to God while they were under slavery in Egypt. Ezekiel 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 8 says this about Israel, but they rebelled against me, and this is God speaking, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Israel may have cried out to God throughout their slavery, but they also turned to idols, to things of this world to find comfort in rather than in God himself. So when we say and remember God remembered, he remembers not because we're good, not because we're successful, not because he particularly thinks we are entitled to it or that because we're without sin. God remembers not us, but God remembers his covenant promises for his people. And we are heirs to God's inheritance, not by any merit of our own, not by any goodness of our own, but by the work of Jesus Christ, his love and his, his, his work on the cross. And we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through faith in Christ. Our identity, too, is being God's covenant people, not anything else in our life, good or bad. Yet it continues 
goes on to say this, this, this fourfold thing, right? God heard, God remembered. Now God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw and God knew. This fourfold thing emphasizes, it's just a very short verse, but it emphasizes God's desire to act, to move into the suffering of Israel. It's not that God couldn't hear before because the Israelites didn't cry out loud enough. It's not that uh, God had an Alzheimer's moment and forgot his covenant that he had made with his people. It's not that God needed cataract surgery so that he could see what was going on with Israel. It's, it's not that God did not care. God saw means that God now decided to act. He had heard their cries for suffering throughout. He saw very clearly their own disobedience and unfaithfulness, and now he decides to act. And so God saw is best understood along with God knew. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Well, it's easy to say that, but God knew seems even more confusing than God saw. God knew what? What is, what is this referencing? And if you, if you uh, read different translations, it in one way becomes more confusing and one way brings out the meaning more. So I'm just going to read you a few translations. The NIV translates God knew. God was concerned about them. New Living Translation translates it, God knew it was time to act. NASB translate, God took notice of them. New King James Version translates, God acknowledged them. The message, Eugene Peterson translates it, God understood. The Wycliffe Bible translator, Bible uh, translates it, and knew them, that is, showed love to them, parenthesis, and he looked upon the Israelites and he had concern for them, that is, he loved them. It's funny, it's not really a translation anymore, it just becomes a commentary. Um, all these translations seem quite different, but at the same time are really coming around the same general idea that God is going to act now that God is going to act now. And that would make total sense in this context of Exodus 2, setting up the whole book of Exodus, that God is going to deliver Israel through Moses. Really, literally, the next verses in Exodus chapter 3 is God's self-revelation to Moses through the burning bush and to call Moses to lead Israel out of slavery. But Wycliffe's translation points to something very interesting. And in this word, new, in this context, in this context, is expressing is expressing that there is an intimate sense between two parties when we talk about God knew a meaning of love expressed coming through when He says God knew. For God to know us is for God to show us His special saving love. For God to know us is for God to show us His special. Saving love. If we think about it on just a purely individualistic level, we all, I think deep down, whether we admit it or not, want to be seen and heard. We want to be seen, we want to be heard, but even more importantly, we want to be seen and known. We want to be understood for who we truly are, and we want to be loved for who we truly are. But that presents a problem for all humans because we know we all have brokenness that we fear is not that lovable. We want people to understand deeply our brokenness and our beauty, our depravity 
and our dignity and still be deeply loved. I think deep down that is our longing. We can love someone despite their brokenness. We can love someone believing that their beauty outweighs their brokenness. But we can't really love someone for their flaws, for their brokenness, for their sins. At least it doesn't make a lot of sense. Can we really love the racist for their racism? Can we really love the adulterer for the way they betrayed us? Can we really love the abuser for abusing us? Can we really love the thief for taking our most valuable things? Only God can truly see us and know us and love us. Pastor Tim Keller says in his book, Meaning of Marriage, he says this about you know, one of the most intimate relationships we can have in life, in marriage. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and, to tr- and, and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. At the cross of Christ, we are fully known and truly loved. Christ took upon himself all of your sins, past, present, and future. He knows the depth of all of our brokenness far more than I think we will ever know about our brokenness. Assuming even that we will one day know the fullness of our, of our brokenness and sin, let's say in heaven, and I'm not sure we will, but assuming that, we still cannot know what it was like for God to experience the penalty of our sins upon the cross. And we cannot know what it was like for our Father in heaven to be grieved by our sin and our brokenness. It is like a child who can never know how their wild living broke their parent's heart, and yet that parent continued to love them. We can never know how our insistence to live in our own strength, our insistence to define right and wrong apart from God, our insistence to live apart from God breaks God's heart, and yet he knows it full well. He has taken those sins upon the cross, and he has loved us truly nonetheless. We are seen and we are known by God. I spent a lot of time exploring these four, this fourfold thing of God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And I did so simply to come full circle back to the beginning of verse 23, where we hear God's people groaning and crying out to God from their slavery. And what we see is that God and his covenant promises and his character and his love is the foundation, is the security blanket with which we have to cry out to God, to have the courage to cry out to God, because this is the kind of God that he is. He is a God who hears. He is a God who remembers his promises. He is a God who sees us and knows us. This Advent... Awaken your sluggish hearts and dare to hope in Christ again. Awaken your longings in life and for God so that God may meet them, if not tangibly, then with his very own presence himself. 
Awaken your disappointments in God and life that he may provide hope once again or perhaps for the first time in your life. Awaken yourself to the slavery to sin that we are all under except by Christ's deliverance from it, setting us free so that we might be slaves instead to righteousness. Any longing we have in this life is almost always a long-suffering longing. Any longing we have in this life is almost always a long-suffering longing. It is a longing we suffer a long time to have met. We may think we have gotten the thing that we long for, but more often than not, what we find is when we get the thing that we thought we wanted, we realize it never delivered in fulfilling the longing that we truly had underneath that thing. Our long-suffering longing can ultimately only be filled by God through Jesus Christ himself. And that is it. If you don't even know what you long for in life, how can Jesus meet you in fulfilling your longing for eternal life? Will you have the courage this Advent season to cry out, to groan and sigh to God in the brokenness of your life? in the brokenness of your own soul and just come empty-handed to God. Say, God, meet my needs. How? How can it be if you say you don't need bread, that Christ can be the bread of life for you? How can it be if you say you don't need water, that Christ can be the living water to you? Meditate this Advent on your long-suffering longings and ask God to meet them. Let's pray.